I've been racing in the US um, for the last six years. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 112 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who had been racing in the US for six years until he retired. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash cycling. And yes, we are starting today with a review seriously good five stars by elliot db from the uk this is easily my favorite podcast damien is technical balanced and very funny what more could you want you'll learn and laugh five stars do have a strange effect on him so here's another one good luck and keep up the good work Elliot, stop it. You're making me blush. I really do appreciate you taking the time out. And definitely, if you do like the show, I would love a review on iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go... Thank you very much. Now, the performance probe this week. Number one. Acute prior heavy strength exercise bouts improve the 20-kilometer cycling time trial performance. First up, what's up with the 20-kilometer time trials in testing? And cheers to Robert, who got in touch because he actually did a 20-kilometer time trial last weekend. Go figure. This study verified a prior five-repetition maximum, 5RM, strength exercise would improve the cycling performance during a 20-kilometer cycling time trial. And after the determination of the 5-rep max leg press exercise load, 11 trained cyclists performed a 20-kilometer time trial in a control condition and 10 minutes after four sets of five maximum repetition strength exercise bouts. Oxygen uptake, blood lactate concentration, ratings of perceived exertion, and power output data were recorded during the time trial. So the results were a 6.1% reduction in the time to complete the time trial, a greater cycling economy and power output in the first 10% of the time trial. However, no differences were observed in pacing strategy, physiological parameters, and RPE between the conditions. These results suggest that five maximum repetition strength exercise bouts improve the performance in a subsequent time trial of 20 kilometers. Okay, it's a good start. I know I won't be recommending to my athletes to go out and do 20 heavy reps of any exercise before a 20-kilometer time trial or any time trial for that matter, but most definitely this is a sign that strength work could be incorporated more closely with FTP training and that it might be possible to crank out a higher output after doing the exercises, thus a higher training effect. Definitely something to think about. Probe number two, dealing with disappointment by Chloe Hosking. If you don't know Chloe, she is a gun sprinter. 
in the female peloton and this is a post on her blog and the blog post is about dealing with disappointment when you don't perform to the standard you and others expect from yourself there's some great quotes in here like talking about disappointment and underperformance is such a taboo subject in this sport of ours which is odd because there are inherently more downs than ups in professional sport and cycling more specifically She follows the idea of what happens when you are consumed by one event, one race, and how it's easy to lose track of the bigger picture. And then what happens when the event is over and you underperformed, which she says the feeling of now what can be overwhelming. I'm sure many writers have felt this. I think of it like being focused on a goal so much that you lose sight of everything around you because you're imagining that when you reach the goal, you will have made it and somehow everything will be better from that moment onwards. This is the picture we build up in our heads about doing this or getting that and what effect it will have on us and even with a good result, things just turn out to be another day. So the race on the weekend It just turns out to be Sunday, as some would say. But I guess this is even harder to swallow when you don't get anywhere near the result you are aiming for, and you can't even justify yourself out of the poor performance. This moment for Chloe was in 2012 after the London Olympics, where she says, Unfortunately, I didn't deal with it very well. I went rapidly into a downward spiral. She calls it her black hole, and it resulted in no motivation to ride. It took her months to get back on a bike, and it was only after she was able to answer her why, which is because she loves it. But I want to wrap this up here with the final part of her post, which runs through her process, and I'm going to read it verbatim because it offers some really sage advice. The process. In my experience, acknowledging this disappointment is the first step in actually dealing with it. It's okay to fail, but you need to be able to address why you fell, pick yourself up, and answer the question, what now? My fall came on Monday morning when I met with my family. I could see in their faces that they'd expected more, and I had too. But when your body doesn't want to cooperate, there is little you can do. I cried as my auntie hugged me. When this happens, for me, the most important thing is to surround myself with my support network, which comes in the form of my family. Discuss what happened to a point and then focus on other things. So for four days, I did everything but think about bike racing. Feeling refreshed and with itching legs, I flew back to Girona on Thursday, but I didn't get straight on my road bike. As I discovered, after the Olympics, there was plenty of other things I could do to help me stay fit and motivated. I went running in the morning and then mountain biking in the afternoon afternoon getting lost in the bush around Girona I found myself wishing I was back on paved roads where my GPS could navigate me home finding the enjoyment after disappointment is just as important as answering the question what now wanting to ride your bike rather than doing it because you feel like you have to is also important when I was out with my mountain bike and found myself thinking about the road I knew it was time to get back into it all tomorrow I start my rebuild for the second part of the season and I'm excited to get back on my road bike. While the disappointment I felt after I crossed the line on Sunday is still with me, I think I'm in a much better position today with to deal with it than I was in 2012. Hopefully, I've seen the last of my black hole days, but as I said in this sport, there are more downs than ups. It's just about you. Find your way through the darkness and come out the other end. Here's to a fantastic end of the 2014 season. Well said, Chloe, and good luck for the rest of the year. 
Alrighty, the nuts and bolts this week, and we are talking about performance systems with Keith Flory, the Director of Performance for Drapak Pro Cycling. On an individual level, habits are your implicit systems that drive your life, and I've spoken about the profound effect of changing your habits and how that can change your cycling as well. The next layer on top of habits are systems, and I have spoken in the past about trying to work out systems in your life so that you can have more riding time. But when it comes to high performance and high performance of an entire team, things get a little more tricky. So you need to be very explicit about your performance systems. So I got Keith onto the show to take a look at his approach to building the performance systems at Drapak Pro Cycling. It's their first year as a pro continental squad. So there's a lot of room to create systems and direct the culture of the team. And there is a lot of great info in this interview, not only if you run a team, but also on the individual level, because you'll get better ideas how to Increase your chances of performing better over an entire season, not just in one race. So let's get into it. So you've been the director of performance for probably a good eight months now, and I believe like any startup, there is lots and lots of challenges in setting up structures and systems from scratch. So there is lots and lots to talk about today, but I want to start first with coaching. And I know you're not strictly employed as the team's coach, but as the performance director, you're linked to that whole process. And it's a very interesting role to me because you work with the riders and you have team goals that you have to satisfy as well. But there's this unknown element of coaches that coach the riders. And what's fascinating about that to me is they're kind of like a really integral part of the team, but they're not directly employed by the team. So your role is to kind of build these relationships, keep them on board and work together to get the best out of the riders. So I know you set out at the start of the year to build these relationships with the riders and their coaches. How have you been able to establish good relationships with coaches of the riders? It's strange because I, I almost can't give you one stock answer because we're dealing with 17 individuals and then those 17 individual riders, coaches and in the same way that each and every one of our 17 riders is different, equally applies to to their coaches. Mm -hmm. I think the overarching way that we've just tried to approach it is just communication. Now, you know, some people have had more communication with than others, and I think that's that's just by a very natural situation. Um, But what I have found is that, that everyone has been very welcoming of the concept of having me as almost a conduit between the rider, the coach, the team. Because whereas I think in the past, and, and probably I wouldn't even say within the past of Drapak, because the, the organisation and the team has changed so much in in a very short space of time, you know, from the end of essentially the 2013 season to, to when the, the, the new season rolled out in, in January 2014. But more so within other teams. You know, I've, I've had comments saying that coaches of riders have had more contact with with me and our team than than they have with anybody from world tour teams, other pro conti teams. So, so I think I think that's a good situation to be in. Um, but in terms of of how we go about that, it's just simple communication. Um, you know, one example you know I can give you is is from training camps. Now, as with most teams, when riders come to to the team for either racing or training camps. 
they're essentially under the the, the team's complete guise, responsibility, whatever you how you want to term it. Um, but what I've always maintained is that rather than, for example, when we have a training camp at the start of the year, typically we'll have all of the riders there. You know, it's not unusual. But rather than me saying, right, guys, today we're going to do X, Y and Z to all 17 people, uh, the process I, I started straight away was saying to the coaches, right, this is the camp. These are the dates. This is the this is the the, the overall plan. But where are you and where is your rider at to to fit into that and more importantly what are the the specific requirements that that you as the coach of this rider would like that person to work on um and sometimes i get the coaches saying to be honest go with what you think go with you know go with where you feel the camp needs to go that's fine you know they're fine with that but then in in other instances i've had had the coaches come back and say brilliant great great to have some input because x person needs to work on x y and z can you incorporate it and in most of the times we are able to incorporate all of the things they're looking at working um or we put them in a priority order you know and we'll we'll say right well you know, X person needs to do X, Y, and Z. We can fit that in using this, that, and the other system, and 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 fit it in. And then other things, you know, we you know might not be logistically possible. For example, like individual motor sessions uh, when there's 15 people that want them. You know, that's we. You know, I don't think any team in the world has 15 people that can ride 15 motorbikes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so there's a whole lot of logistic stuff that sometimes gets in the way, but but wherever possible, we we always try and accommodate based on that that you know open communication relationship that hopefully we have with with all of our coaches. It sounds like you're saying the relationship changes from just one of being with the rider to actually then opening that performance relationship up, so you have a team on your side so that your rider gets the best possible team support in the background. Yeah, for sure. If you take yourself out of the team perspective and you look at it from a pure white piece of paper and and look at an athlete-centered approach, then the athlete is at the center and everything else is around the periphery of the athlete to offer their services to the athlete to be the best they can be. Now, one of those is the coach, another is the team, another is you know X, Y, and Z, and 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 really that has to that has to flow. Otherwise, things will clash and people will get in the way, etc. So, so we really do have to have that athlete-centered approach where you know we all have to pull in the same direction for that athlete. Really, it actually sounds a lot better than a lot of world tour teams. I'm sure there's some world tour teams that are fully supported and they think about all the different elements that need to go in but it sounds like the approach is much better than what world tour teams are doing you know i don't don't say it out of ego or or boasting but all we try to do is implement the best system possible and i i've you know through my previous work in other prior to drapak i've seen some pretty weak systems um from you know world tour through to international rugby through to international soccer etc and and if you don't have a strong system then you know athletes still may be successful let's let's be honest about this but you're not doing everything possible to to aid that athlete being the best that they can um whereas if if you can do everything and you, the system is robust then you're removing so many of the other barriers out of the way and i think we've still got a long way to go 
Um, you know, by, by no means are we the the ideal at all. And I know there's lots of you know practices, whether it's through the system or, or actual practices that the world tour teams and other sports are are doing, which which win either well, which either we are not doing or or can't do for for various reasons. But I think I think we offer a lot more than other teams do. Yeah, I'm a big believer in systems as well, and it must be exciting for you to be in charge of the system creation because then you get to apply all the ideas that you've had over the years and just lay them out, see which ones are going to work in this situation, and ultimately reap the benefits from that. Oh, for sure. You kind of touched on finding that sweet spot. So the sweet spot is between what the team wants, what the rider wants, what their coach feels is their strengths and weaknesses. But how does this play out in the season? I guess this is where you fall back on those systems. But in practice over a season, so many things go wrong because I'm sure at the start of the year, you're thinking about plans and you're looking at the calendar and race profiles and rider strengths and everything. But things happen and some bad things have happened this year to to drop back as well. But how do you actually break that down, that process down so everybody's on the same page all of the time? Um, it's a very good question. I think I think you know this is one area where we we can improve. Um, having a system at the start of the year, you know, having a, a you know your plan and your your schedule, your race schedule is all all very nice. It looks fantastic. You've got every every rider where you want them at the right time, right place. The reality of that come mid season when you know, for example, Travis gets hit by a car. You know, you get another guy who's broken x-bone or you get someone who's sick and that's when the wheels can come off and and i don't think they did for us this year and i think i think that mainly comes down to to communication and as i said i think i think we can get better at it for sure but there was one or two races this year where we where we we were going in short of a rider so for example in korea tour of korea this year we we went in one short because of illness and and, and there was nothing we could do about that. It was a last-minute illness, and we had the, the the welfare of the rider to consider. So we we made a judgment call and, and went in late. Now that changed our on the ground race tactics and dynamics um, instantly. So so things like that are always going to come come about. But I think as long as you've got communication, your system can fail. But as long as you've got the the communication and the individuals within the team to to address any system failures then you're set up to cope with it now the real trick here there is is recognizing where our systems weren't quite robust enough didn't quite work and reassessing them and and changing them for for future um, whether it's immediate future or for 2015 16 etc Part of your role in in that sense is spending time looking at the numbers and the data of the riders themselves. So n- not in a sense of directing them what to do with their training, but just to keep an eye on them over the season, which I'm sure plays a big role in understanding them better so then you can start to position them into different races and things. But what tools are you using to, if any, tools are you using to coordinate the team's performance as a whole leading up to events? So in terms of our team systems tools, um, we actually have a, a performance planning system, which is in, instilled 
for every race. We actually have a stepping stone approach for the implementation of that. So, so six weeks out, um, a document is pulled together by by the the DS for the race, and that gets communicated. And in that in that document is some fairly administrative information um, initially. So, you know logistics such as flights etc but then also some some more uh, performance orientated details such as the goals at that moment for the team um, who we feel might have a, an opportunity to perform so for example we may appoint a gc rider obviously that all comes down to tactics and, and where the riders are in the particular race um, but then then we also appoint particular roles for riders far out as we can and that allows riders to to be fully aware of what their you know what everyone's role is on that race just to ensure that they can do the best job that they can by knowing what their job is cycling in particular has probably been quite far behind on on the approach of actually saying well this rider for this race will execute this role you know, and it and it moves on from just having your you know your specialisms. So you're you're just a domestique, you're just a sprinter, you're just a climber, uh, and it actually goes into a lot more detail of of you know if you do have a domestique type role, what areas of the of you know being a domestique you will be expected to perform during that race. So that's uh, very much on a, a race by race basis. Um, but then in addition to that, we use uh, one of our partners, Training Peaks, as I'm, I'm sure a lot of your list, listeners are, mm-hmm. are aware of. Um, and that's a, it's a tool been out there for you know, a number of years, and it's a fantastic tool. And to be honest, without it, I don't think it would make our systems as streamlined as, as potentially they are at the moment. Um, so that's, you know, that's invaluable because that's where we can make last-minute calls on either selections or, or roles, um, I think. That's that's a real key to plug into into all of our our management systems and our performance systems that we have. Yeah, setting the expectations early on, I think, is a game changer for the mindset of someone leading into a, a race, especially if they know specifically what they have to do six weeks out. It sounds amazing. We actually take it further back than six weeks as well. It's that's just a, almost a formal document. You know, at the a much earlier phase, we'll we'll identify riders where we feel that they could ride race well. So, for example, you know, we'll use Lachlan Norris. Um, you know, we spoke to him earlier, much earlier in the year, and we said, "Well, a perfect lead-in for you for the year. We really feel you could ride very well for a GC result in the Tour of Korea." Which he ended up um, fourth and, and very close fourth could have swung slightly differently, but then off the back of that, we also talked about the concept of him targeting um, Utah in particular, and I think his top ten result in in Utah was a real testament to to not only the you know the sheer bloody hard work that he put in, which you know can't be understated, but also I think the process that we had of working with him and identifying those you know those targets for him a lot earlier in the year that he could really focus down to so that's a, a perfect example of, of where it has worked um, and it doesn't work all the time yeah and falling back on the you know the strength of these systems and and once you have buy-in in air quotes from everybody then it starts to really be set in the team's culture and everybody expects these small things 
I was excited to join the team at the start of this year and I, I officially started on January 1. So, so essentially at the first training camp. So, um, and it's taken, you know, it just takes time to get to know people and personalities, etc. So, so I'm, I'm even more excited to, to go into 2015 um, with the time in place to, to really hone down some of these, you know, these systems and these principles that, that we have, but also whilst knowing individuals, you know, we will have some riders who are new to the team, new to the, new to everyone, but by far the majority will remain the same and, and they will be used to some of the systems that are in place. And, and, you know, as you said, they've, they've engaged and, and they've, they're fully on board with them. So, so I think, you know, that's what part of it makes it, a lot more exciting going into 2015 as well. Yeah, and having young riders that have never been through a system like this or aren't too set in their ways is also um, helpful as well, I imagine. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, that's certainly to, to have no disrespect to some of the, some of the older riders. They've, they've equally been as good, um, and we've been able to rely on them for, for, I suppose, a little bit more constructive feedback from them, given you know, given their their experiential knowledge, I guess. But you know, through one, one to through to seventeen, they've all they've all taken everything on board, and they're all you know very 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 positive to work and contribute and to you know to give back to the team structure. I think. So let's change gears here for a moment and mm. talk about innovations that Drapak are kind of bringing to the sport, or just innovations. In general, I, you know, being a performance guy, you would have your finger on the pulse. You would be looking at all the different options, and then you're trying to distill them down into practical level. The only bits that I've been able to dig up about Drapak are some live high, train low stuff with hypoxic machines, yeah, and neurophysics training. But what other types of innovations have you been able to bring on board this year? I can give you one very clear example. We've very much focused on on the health of the riders. You know, a lot of people will be saying, "Well, that's not." particularly innovative and and in itself it's not but actually very few teams do it yes they have full-time doctors yes they you know they they see a physiotherapist etc but but with the races that, that we actually go to if you if you actually break them down and, and we did this early on in the year well actually early before i started and um, a lot of our races are are held in extremes so either extreme altitude extreme temperatures um, they're the two biggest extremes, um, and the majority of our races are in those. So you know, we start at you know Tour Down Under and Nationals um, in January in Australian summer, where temperatures you know have been known to hit forty degrees plus, and then we go up to you know we we continue on the on that circuit for for some time. So we have Oceanas, which again can be incredibly hot. Uh, we have Sun Tour, you know, down in down in Melbourne, exactly the same. Um, we I'm just trying to remember our race program. So then we go to uh, extremes of altitude. So we have Chingai Lake, and then we have the US program. So we had we were, we were lucky enough to go to Utah and Colorado this year. So really, the health of our riders was very much a key um, when we first when we first started looking at. You know, geez, we're going to be going to go a lot of hot races and a lot of hot races that are at altitude. So, working with our team doctor and in association with um, another doctor, a non-medical doctor, we actually have looked at health practices on races. So, for example, when we went to Chingar Lake, which is 
for those people who don't know, is is held in China, and it's it's probably an average altitude of around about three thousand meters. Some days are lower, some days are higher. Um, so it's it's incredibly high race. Um, it's very exposed. The temperatures vary there from. I think they had sleet um, one day, and they certainly had uh, 25 to 30 degrees another day. Um, so when you combine that with the the altitude plus the, um, the the racing environment is is notoriously not so friendly to elite athletes. So from uh, from various pollutions through to basic sanitary practices, I suppose, to, to use another word. We actually made sure that we were doing everything we possibly could to ensure that the health of the riders was maintained. Now, you know, we installed a, um, well, we termed it a health pack for, for Chingai Lake. Mm. And that health pack combined um, a number of interventions, some simple, some a little more complex. And I won't go into into so much detail about the pack, but we, we actually provided riders with basic uh, sanitizing uh, items. So from the hand sanitizing gel, which is nothing new, you know, teams and organizations have been using that for, for a long time. But to get over the issues of, uh, of lack of availability for the riders or people not knowing where hand sanitizer is, we provided each rider with you know their own bottle in addition to um, there being a, a standardized protocol of before entering the bus, you know you had to sanitize, you had to control that. So basically as soon as you got on the bus, it was a sterile environment, um, the same around the dinner table, etc. Um, in addition to that, we also provided them with antibacterial an antibacterial wipe for use post-race. Certainly one of the challenges racing in in that environment was a lot of dirt on the road from, from wildlife um, contains um, some really not very nice bacteria. Now, obviously, um, in the, on the wet days, on the dry days, you not only inhale it, you, you know, digest it, but you also get quite a, a large volume of, of bacteria around around your nasal area around the mouth and so the 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 wipes are very much aimed to ensure that the riders were were cleaning their both their hands and and also around the mouth area to limit the ingestion of of any potentially not good bacteria so we we were very very heavy on the the sanitizing element um we also then indeed then then included a number of post-race recovery items um and we also actually worked with um our biochemist uh doctor who who actually um looked at various blood values and actually identified um where riders were um suffering through either from immunosuppression or had low values of micronutrients and we actually provided them with with supplements to either enhance their immune system or to cope with other other stresses so the the stress of going altitude for example is is a is a big stress in itself so so we provide them with with various um supplements so from vitamin c through to coenzyme q10 again you know nothing in there that's particularly revolutionary in itself but I think the the actual practice and availability is the biggest challenge. So we took that challenge out of the way and just got it done. So I think I think you know the the health pack and the health of the riders was 
a very key thing for Chingai and the other subsequent races that we did at altitude as well. Um, and I think, you know, I think we, we had success with that, that implementation. Um, we had one rider um, who, who didn't travel to Chingai because of a, a pre-existing injury and illness. Um, so that was, that was taken care of. And then we only had one other rider who, who had to withdraw from, from Chingai Lake. So, um, and, and that was, that's pretty rare in a race as, as so brutal as, as Chingai Lake. So I was very, I was very happy with the, the, the outcomes that, that, that we achieved. Um, and I think uh, it bodes well for continuing the, the system of, you know, operating that practice later down the line as well. And, you know, I think um, there's lots of things we learned from it for sure. Um, but in itself, it was, it was, you know, I think it was a success. So that's probably the, you know, one of the biggest innovations that we've been, we've been looking at. And, and 2015, we'll actually be rolling out a number of things that we, we trialed this year. Um, so we'll actually be rolling them out as standard practice throughout the year. And then I guess the, you know, the, the second big one for me is, is recovery. Um, and we've been working with a number of partners to, to refine our recovery strategy. And again, you know, I think we experimented with one or two things this year and, and we'll be rolling it out as a as a team wide race by race and standardized policy i am interested in getting a little bit behind your trial process though is this actual something you're doing at say picking a race and then trying to figure out whether it's been working or not or you do it outside of races or how does this process actually work um a bit of both actually we we implement some trials on training camps if we had more training camps, if I'm honest, I'd, I'd probably roll them out um, at every camp before races. Um, but because we don't, um, you know, we, we have, I suppose, limited access to to trialing it. We'll actually just trial it in in specific races as well. So we'll we won't bowl in new, you know, crazy ideas in in you know certainly in in critical races. We'll We'll give them a soft launch if um, if needed. So we, we implemented some things in 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 Utah, which um, which we were very careful about. And if there was any ever issues, we we pull it back, basically. But uh, yeah, so so a mixture of training camps and and races, and that, and then we you know we have a look at the you know our measurements, um, but then we also quite critically also get the feedback from the riders as well. Mm. Um, because if it's a stressor to them on race, then it's not worth doing because it's a it's a stress, and you know they they don't need too much more stress than they're already getting in a lot of tough races. So we you know we very 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 carefully listen to uh, the riders um, and get their feedback and and adjust accordingly. Basically, the final thing I want to touch on here, just while I've got your attention is mm. the emerging space of big data and how that's going to kind of roll out into cycling and and what you think about big data as a director of performance for a team is it something that you are looking at now to consider or is it something that you're keeping your eye on yeah keeping my eye on i think um we have to keep an eye on it there's there's no doubt about that i think we just have to choose our our battles carefully. Um, 
you know we 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 don't have a limitless resource so we we have to choose the things that we feel will make biggest impact um and and certainly you know given my you know i've as you mentioned before my coaching background um data is you know for me data is critically important but but also you know it's it has to be married with lots of other soft skills soft elements uh, whether it's communication or whatever it may be it's it's a, a critical part of the puzzle of which there are many critical parts so at the moment a watching brief without doubt um and we'll we'll wait and see what what evolves if i get five more staff then then i would give you a very different answer <laughs> i think <laughs> yeah the promise of big data is um is kind of its strength at the moment but how it actually is going to roll out especially in a cycling sense is kind of unknown having the data is one thing using it and using it effectively is is a very critical factor you know and i know there's you know lots of lots of teams both in cycling outside and outside of the sport of cycling who collect tremendous amounts of data but it's then being able and knowing what to do with that data um you know afterwards and and that's where you know you need the right people in the right place at the right time with the right resources to really make it effective you know you if you if you just get swamped with data you you don't see the you know you don't see the wood for the trees and you might miss something equally important like speaking to a rider and then you know they met you know by that one conversation you might miss uh, miss something or they may, might give you a, a slight insight here and there which which equally gives you as useful information as as lots of other data um, but it has it so in my mind it has a, a very critical place but we also have to be balanced in our approach of its use if that makes sense yeah we still need people <laughs> pretty much uh, exactly <laughs> yeah no absolutely you need you need bums on seats and and the right bums on seats as well so yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Keith. Definitely thank you for being open and honest about what you've been going through this year. I know that it's a tough and competitive world and so people aren't always so forthcoming. So I really appreciate that. Where's the best place that people can find out more information about the team or you? Team's website. Um, there is lots of more information on that. Also, our, our Twitter is Twitter account is, is very, very active, as is our Facebook group. Um, and then more information about me is, oh, well, aside from Google searches, um, I'm generally more than welcome to, uh, you know, speak to people um, with ideas or just to have questions for me. Um, I'm generally pretty open. But again, probably best contacting me through through either Twitter or the team's Facebook accounts. You can get hold of Keith at drapiccycling.com. They are very responsive, so don't be afraid to use the form on the contact page. I want to wrap up here with a quick note of what I got from this interview so that you can apply it to yourself. If you are in the hunt for performance, you're looking for gains, and I believe every cyclist is looking for gains, whether they're large or they're those 0.5 percenters, which you can chase after if you've got everything else locked down. But Keith comes from eight years at British Cycling working under the marginal gains system. And where does he start when he gets a chance to hold the reins? Back to basics, staying healthy. It's all about fist bumps and hand wipes and 
my point here isn't that there's an order of high to low percent gains. It's that you should start with you, the rider, and take a hard look at what your limiters are in your cycling sphere and really hone in on what is holding you back. It might be really obvious, but you just can't see it for whatever reason. So rather than just reaching for the first idea that pops into your vision, plan it out. Think about it. Systematize it by listing out everything that needs improvement and hitting the lowest hanging fruit first. Definitely, if you want a hand finding and eliminating your limiters to performing better, then hire me as your coach. I will work with you to find your limiters and put together a plan to eliminate them. Now, the tech hacks and products section, Interbike has done it again. A new power meter, well... I'm sure there are a few more to come, actually, but this is exciting because the announcement is the price and the promise of accuracy. It's called the Precision, and it's from the company that has one of the worst names in the history of sport tech, 4i, and it's 400 bucks US, 100 bucks for every eye. I've actually been biting my lip for this one for a good, I'd say, 10 months now, and I'm super excited that it's launched and it's bang on schedule. For those of you that have been following power meters for a couple of years, you would know Keith Wakem of the fuck it, I'm just going to build my own power meter fame. That project and Keith were bought by 4i around the end of 2013. Keith packed up and moved to 4i's HQ to work on the project. I've spent some time chatting to Keith and he is a super smart dude. So I had complete faith that if anyone could pull this project off, it was him. So back to the power meter, here's the basic features that they list, self or shop installable on cranks with flat arms, single-sided or dual-sided options, coin cell battery life of 200 hours, active learning temperature compensation, Ant Plus and Bluetooth low energy, accuracy is under 1% error rate, which is double what most power meters claim, and it's compatible with both Ant Plus and Bluetooth smart displays. It's ticking a lot of boxes, and that's why I'm super excited about it. Here's the lowdown on the price. It's not super complicated, but listen closely. If you want to buy one side and install yourself, it's $300.99. If you want left and right and install yourself, it's $749.99. If you want one side and a dealer to install it, then it's $349.99 plus installation fee. And if you want two and a dealer to install it, it's $699 plus installation fee. The kicker here is that the installation kit is 100 bucks, So that instantly adds 100 bucks to the price of the power meter. So they're being a little tricky in regards to that. But I'm sure there's ways to hack this even if you go in a group buy and everybody buys it so it brings the price down. It is still the cheapest power meter by far and the option of left and right or both and putting it on pretty much any crank. They're saying that even carbon is testing well. They can't guarantee it at this stage, but there is promise there. So all I can say is I am excited because what do we all want? Tell them, Curtis. We want the power for the people. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Angus Morton. Angus rode for Drapic from 2008 to 2010 before retiring from the sport. His little brother is the soon-to-be ex-Garmin Sharp rider, Lachlan Morton. And I bring this up because 
They are looking for a team together as Angus makes a comeback to cycling and Lachlan steps away from the world tour level. That in itself is a pretty interesting story to me. It doesn't happen in cycling every day that one person comes back and one person steps down. They're brothers and they want on the ride on the same team together. You actually get invited to part of this process with Angus and Lachlan rediscovering their love of cycling in a documentary that they did called Whereabouts. And the doco on the surface is about riding 2,000 kilometres across Australia at the end of 2013. And I really have to be honest and tell you here, I was a little sceptical about the doco after seeing mixed messages in the photos of the trip. But the story told in the doco left a good taste in my mouth. Actually, one of the best parts is the sub-story of whether Angus will make it all the way or not and watching the transformation, which has obviously driven the plan to ride together next year, be it in a team or around the world. I recommend checking out thereabouts. It will do two things for you at minimum. The first one, it'll make you want to rediscover why you love cycling, even if you haven't lost it, and you will want to be really, really skinny, even though it looks super unhealthy. And that's it. You've been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash graphic cycling to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 